It's at the letters brought to you by Miller Light, the original light beer for Thursday, October 6th. Arden Zwelling and Ben Nicholson Smith here at Rogers Center on Blue Jays workout day ahead of the wildcard series against the Seattle Mariners this weekend. Want to thank Devlin Brand for helping us out on site. Want to thank Christian Ryan, as always, for working on the audio of this podcast. Ben, where are you at entering the weekend? It feels like it's been seven months, man, that we have been every day with this team, literally since spring training, since the lockout ended. It's all been for this. Yeah, it's uh, it's an exciting time for the Blue Jays. It's a busy time, uh, certainly for them, uh, for us as well. You're obviously just in Baltimore doing the part of the broadcast there, so it's it's busy. It's exciting. You know, selfishly, I look at it and I you know I see 4 p.m., 4 p.m., 2 p.m. Love that. <laughs> that is ideal. That is a great setup. I think it's great for fans of this team and fans of baseball in Toronto to have baseball playoff baseball back here for the first time in six years uh it's definitely been too long so it'll be great to see what they can do but you know we've said this a few times really i wouldn't be surprised if they're playing in three four weeks but i also wouldn't be surprised and you know let's hope for the sake of our listeners that this isn't the case but how surprised could you be if if this is all over after a couple days so got to enjoy it here and and see what this weekend has in store it's funny because during the regular season i really don't like the 3 p.m starts from a working perspective I i think for fans it's great but just for the very small amount of people who would be impacted from working perspective not that anybody cares about our trials and tribulations but it really screws up your morning and your night like the three o'clock start because for us like you're getting to the ballpark four hours minimum before first pitch typically so you think about it for three o'clock start you're at the ballpark at 11 so you're leaving home before that you really can't do much in the morning and then the game goes let's say like three till 6 30 7 o'clock we're working for an hour sometimes two at post game probably more like two most days might even be two and a half depending on what kind of crazy game it was so now you're getting out of the ballpark at 9 p.m and it's like you don't really have much of a night so it kind of screws up your morning and your night so i don't love those 3 p.m starts during the regular season love the four o'clock during the playoffs because the playoffs is just like we we have kind of just handed our lives over (laughs) to the baseball gods for the next month and it might only be for two days this weekend it might be for several weeks with us on early morning flights and traveling around and just kind of being at the whims of whatever happens to this ball club so i've like resigned my fate to not having a personal life for the next little bit so i am actually okay with the earlier start time so it's it's only like a maybe you get out of here at 11 p.m 12 a.m rather than like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Yeah, exactly. And we'll see if if and when the baseball gods give our lives back. Um, <laughs> wondering when that moment will occur. But certainly not wanting to rush that moment either. I think it's a fun time. Even now, we're down here at Rogers Center, as you said, after the Blue Jays workout. And so you're kind of reminded there's this, for me, I haven't covered a playoff game since 2016 because the last time the Jays were in was 2020 pandemic season. And so this muscle memory kind of kicks in of, oh yeah, this is where they have this event and this is how this unfolds all the mechanics behind the scenes it is a little bit of a different cadence and a really fun one and the stakes are just so high for everyone involved everyone knows it every inning matters so the games that we're about to watch they might be lopsided but there's no doubting the significance of these games and being here for the first time since 2016 really was important to the club i know like a lot of people say that right and you kind of think well just being in the postseason matters but the blue jays really pushed 
for this like as a team and that's from talking to blue jays and talking to their coaches they pushed for this they wanted it they talked about it after they clinched on that off day and had the celebration on the friday like they didn't say oh we're gonna you know field our b line up from here on out we're gonna take our foot off the gas like they kept throttling and they kept going because they wanted home field advantage in this wildcard series they wanted to play playoff games here in 2016 it's for the first time since 2016 and it's not just because it's been that long but it's because of the years when they weren't here at all when they were in buffalo and dunedin yeah absolutely and that makes me think too man it's been a long time since we actually podcasted there's a lot that's happened like that celebration here in toronto yep pretty wild celebration go to baltimore clinch home field and then now they're setting up for their playoff run here against the mariners which you know to your point i think it makes a definite difference in the eyes of the players. They want to be at home. The coaches clearly wanted to be at home. And some of that is comfort. If you look at the percentages, home field advantage in baseball's 52% to 48%. So it's not a huge percentage, but it's there. And sometimes you just need one moment where the crowd gets on an opposing player. Maybe there's a balk. Maybe there's an error. Those things happen and those things don't happen in instructional league as often as they happen in the playoffs because that pressure exists and it's real and what you just said makes me think of garrett cole when he balked here when the yankees were here about a week ago and he tried to play it off like it was the pitch com but dude you're in your delivery you're in your pitching motion there's nothing going on with pitch com in that moment so that is an example of the crowd getting to garrett cole getting to a pitcher we saw it happen with johnny cueto this actually reminds me of a question that we were sent and uh thank you to everybody who entered the mailbag contest through uh miller like uh and the three questions that we selected are going to get drawstring backpacks so congratulations Congratulations to those people. Um, and, and here's the first question. It's from Andrew Mayo in Newfoundland uh, who asks, Ben, do you think the playoff crowds will cause havoc with Pitchcom? Great question. And thanks to everyone who submitted them. Obviously, only the winners uh, will, will get those bags, but really appreciate all the questions from all our listeners. And the short answer here, Andrew, is yeah, I, I think they will. I mean, this is a new wrinkle in the playoffs this year to have Pitchcom in the playoffs. We haven't seen that before. And so the crowds will get loud, especially if the dome is closed here in Toronto, it could get really loud. And so for the pitchers and catchers who are using Pitchcom, it actually might be more difficult for them than they've ever experienced. And that could create some wrinkles and could add to that home field advantage. I was talking to Pete Walker in Baltimore just about the atmosphere at at Rogers Center during the postseason because like he hasn't pitched in the postseason at Rogers Center but he has pitched on that mound literally and he has coached a ton of players through it and he was here in 15 here in 16 and he was like dude I remember David Price telling me when he took the field in 2015 how different it was David Price not a guy who's like short on big game experience and not a guy who like oh I've never been in a pressure-packed environment before absolutely David Price had when he came to the Blue Jays and even he was saying it's different, man. Like this, like the crowd, the atmosphere, you do feel it and you do get energy from it. I almost wonder if that's even a little bit of like a double-edged sword sometimes yeah. because like baseball is a real fine motor skill sport. 
And it's like execution for pitchers is really important. It doesn't take a lot to fly open. It doesn't take a lot to overthrow. It doesn't take a lot to like get out of your mechanics and lose the zone. So for as much energy as Blue Jays pitchers are going to derive, as Alec Manoa is going to derive on the mound from that crowd, he also has to kind of have techniques and rhythms and ways to calm himself and to lower that heartbeat. I talked to Bo Bichette about it in Baltimore and he was telling me, he was like, lately I've just been looking at the last row of seats and that's what he does before his plate appearances. He looks up and he looks at the very last row and he says that kind of centers him. Remember Mitch White? I think he said this on the podcast. Yeah. Maybe he said in passing to, to us but he said he looks for a zero in the stadium. Dude, yeah. I did that the other night. In, <laughs> it's a tangent now, man. Yeah. I did that the other night in Baltimore. When, so the first night in Baltimore, I'm sitting in the camera well. Yeah. It's like nine degrees, pouring rain, right? So freezing. I'm out there for three hours. And I was like, am I going to make it through this? And I literally was like, oh, yeah. I looked for a zero and I found a zero, right? It was on, it was in an advertisement. I, for, I forget what the ad was for and I found a zero or maybe it was an O and I just like stared at that and kind of meditated on it for a while and was like, <laughs> oh, I don't feel the cold and the rain that much anymore. It kind of works. So like, I, I do think that Blue Jays players, yes, they're going to be hyped up and yes, they're going to derive a lot of energy from this crowd, but they're also going to have to have ways to center themselves and calm themselves and remember to focus on process and technique and execution in a very, very fine motor skill sport. Well, yeah, this this is an organization that employs mental skills coaches 12 months a year, but they're certainly going to have their <laughs> calendars full uh, this week, or at least they should. Um, yeah, it's a really intense time of year. I think you're right. I think it, you know we're not watching these guys try to do their max deadlift or bench press, right? In yeah. that case, the crowd might be a pure positive. In this case, I, I wouldn't know. I don't do either of those things, but um, <laughs> in theory, it could be. In this case, though, you're right. There is some some real finesse required. And you think about Kevin Gosman as he's trying to recover from the splitter or the, the cut on his right uh, middle finger and, and how fine that grip is when he throws the splitter. He threw a bullpen here today, came out of that bullpen fine. Uh, but again, he doesn't throw the splitter in the bullpen for that very reason, because it is such a fine uh, sport in a lot of these situations. So that's the beauty of it. I mean, that's, that's where the guys who can respond best will probably be on the winning side. You do feed off of energy, like whether there's two people around you or whether there's 49,000 people around you, right? And it does impact you. Like that's a very real thing. I've never been in the situation where I'm trying to perform my job in front of, well, maybe yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. We both have. Yeah. Maybe ways. we have, right? Yeah. And it, but that does get to you a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like when I'm doing a, a walk off interview on the field, like after a game on a weekend and there's 40,000 people in the stands and my interview is going to the bowl. Yeah. I, I feel that, right? Like you want to talk about performance anxiety. Like that's there. Of course. And I, I think like anytime, I won't reveal too much here, but you know, there are times that, if you're doing these TV hits or radio hits, whatever the case, sometimes it's useful just to remind yourself, yeah, no one's watching and create this cognitive dissonance in your mind yeah. where you actually say no one's watching. Um, right. So those are the techniques that you know are useful for people who don't have to compete against someone else because that's the thing. You know, you're not competing if you're, you know, talking about baseball. There's no one on the other side trying to defeat you, but that's what these players are up against. It's another thing I was talking to Bo about, man, in Baltimore. He was saying, you know, I don't think I've actually been to the postseason yet. I don't consider myself having experienced it because, look, when they played in 2020 at the Trop, 
before cardboard cutouts with pumped in crowd noise at the end of a 60 game, like weird topsy turvy year in the middle of a pandemic. It didn't feel like the postseason. So Bo was saying, like, I think this is our first postseason for myself, for Vlad, for Kevin, for Alejandro Kirk, for all these guys, right? So it is going to be a test of a very young Blue Jays position player core. Like you think about it, this Blue Jays position player group, average age 27.1. It's gonna be the second youngest group in the postseason after the Cleveland Guardians. You're gonna be relying on Alejandro Kirk, who I'm sure is gonna catch Alec Manoa in game one to game call and to be running the strategy on the field. This is a 24 year old we're talking about here. He might actually be 23. Alec Manoa, 23 or 24. Him, 24. Right? Yeah, Alec Manoa, 24, is going to be throwing the first pitch of the game in that atmosphere. He's gonna be a guy who you were counting on to log innings who's going to be hitting a top order after george springer it's got bo bichette and vladimir guerrero jr guys who yeah there's four years like on their baseball reference pages but one of those years was a rookie year one of those years is 2020 that weird season i was referring to bo said this i feel like i'm in my second year in the big leagues like i feel like i'm i just finished my second true big league season very young players, very inexperienced players. It's going to be really interesting to see them tested on the stage. Yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, this is where, you know, the Jays have this chance to deliver on their promise, which is immense. I mean, Bo, second season or not, led the league in hits this year, despite the slow start that he had. I mean, kind of wild. Um, but this is it. This is where they can really start making good on their promise as players and as a core, as a collective, or they fizzle out and it doesn't happen. All of a sudden you start counting down the years until Vlad and Bo are testing free agency. And you don't want to be playing that game if you're the Blue Jays. You want to be saying, all right, we had an amazing playoff run. Now let's build on that. Not, uh, are we going to waste this opportunity? And really this weekend is massive in tipping the scales one way or the other. So Fangrass has the odds for the series as 54.2% for the Blue Jays, 45.8% for the Mariners. Does that read right to you? I think if you would ask me to pick it without looking, I probably would have picked almost exactly yeah. in that range. You know, yeah. 53 to 55 Jays, and then the Mariners, you know, in the high 40s. Uh, what about you? I mean, is 55, that fair? 45, I yeah. think is totally fair yeah. for the Blue Jays, which means there is still 45% of outcomes where the Mariners win this series. The Mariners could easily win this series, easily. and the Blue Jays' season is over by Monday. Yeah, and, and no one... You know, if you're the Jays, you definitely can't let that into your head. Um, you, you know, you got to be you got to be walk down there. there. Hey, guys. <laughs> and certainly, you know, the way they celebrated on Friday, they really um, celebrated like they hadn't uh, had that chance in a while. And as a quick aside, they should be celebrating anytime you get to the playoffs in the major leagues. Save it. We'll get there. Well, we'll, we'll get there. I mean, you got to do it. You got to do it. So. This is a group, yeah, that they'll have a chance now to really be able to start pushing things forward. And yeah, I think they're the better team. I think they have a way better offense. I think they've certainly got the pitching to compete with the Mariners and home field will help. So to me, that's a team that's in a very good position to win this series. It's interesting. They're similar clubs, right? And that they've got that like top end pitching depth. Like I really don't know which side of the coin I would like if like one side is Castillo and Ray and the other side is Manoa and Gossman. That's as much of a push, I think, as I can as I can figure. I guess once you throw in Stripling and Gilbert, Mariners to me have I would match. take the Mariners at yeah. that point. But you don't know you're going to three games, right? So I'm just going first two. First two, I honestly think it's pretty even. 
I don't close. know how to pick between those two. It's close. I mean, Castillo, from a stuff standpoint, is just nasty. Manoa, you know, we talk about heartbeat and the kind of challenge of staying composed when there's so much pressure. Manoa is someone that certainly people around the Jays describe him as like on a level, even though he hasn't yet played in the postseason, yeah. the kind of guy who can really thrive in that environment. So very curious to see what he can do. But the fact is, he's probably going to come out in the first inning throwing 92. You know, yeah. Castillo's going to be throwing 99. So it's it really is a different story. The thing with Manoa that's so key is they've gotten him a nice extended rest before the postseason because we've seen him so many times this year take the mound without his best stuff. And he's making adjustments. And he's reading swings. He's figuring out what's working for him that day, what's not working for the opposition hitters. And he's just kind of like adjusting his way through it and he's finding his way through and he's being like okay i'm not going to strike out eight today i'll just be contact management alec manoa and it's great that you have that ability right with it the two seamer with with your slider with your change up right like it's great that you can do those things but what's even better is if you have that plus 95 96 plus a snider that's like a slider that's snapping and like a change up that's really fading away from lefties like that's what you want you want both And I feel like a lot of times this year on four days rest, you've seen contact management, Alec Manoa and the hope for the Blue Jays with the amount of rest they got him ahead of this start and the way he was able to kind of hone in on his routines. I think the hope is you're going to have stuff Alec Manoa and contact management Alec Manoa. Best case scenario, he goes out there, throws six, seven innings, allows a couple runs, and that's totally imaginable. It really is. In the scenario where he does not have his best stuff, however, the Jays have to be prepared, and I think they will, to take him out of there in the fourth inning. Like you have to be ready to go to the bullpen early. The stakes are too high. You can only afford to lose one game in this series. So you have to lose that game carefully. (laughs) You have to spend that loss very carefully. And if you are not in a position to lose any games, which, you know, Manoa, they will be because it'll be game one, but you have to manage extremely aggressively. If that means Tim Mays is coming in in the fifth, Jimmy Garcia in the sixth, you know, Anthony Bass in the third, do what you have to do. You know, Jordan Romano for six outs. This is the time of year that it is imperative you make that pitching change one batter too early and not too late. Even if things go well first two trips through, top of the Mariners order comes back up and like say it's a, a bloop and a walk. Uh, you got to be ready to make that move. Even if Manoa hasn't given up like super hard contact at that point, you got to be ready to make that move. So I think there's absolutely like a spot early in a game, like early quote unquote being like, I don't know, fifth inning for like a bass, you know, or if it's like, if it had to be like Mesa against tough lefties or even a Richards in a spot, right? Like, I don't know, but I think there's, there's going to be like a pretty, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be a stressful moment. I think in a middle inning spot where you're seeing a really good reliever coming in to get some big outs. And if it's not Manoa, it'll be Stripling or Gosman, whoever starts game two, that's still at this point, unclear as we record this probably by the time most people are listening well actually i don't know because the jays might decide after game one based on what john schneider said when i asked him you know are you guys willing to go into game one without having your game two starter finalized he said yeah that's on the table so that kind of leads me to believe in both stripling and gosman through bullpens on thursday either one of them could go at any time i kind of think that they're going to play it by ear which is something that you've discussed and, and you know, it's it's an interesting concept and, and I think it might be the right call at this point. I pitched it last week on the podcast and it's what I would do is you start Alec Manoa in game one. If you win game one, you start Ross Stripling in game two. If you lose game one, you're starting Kevin Gosman in game two. 
but you win game one, you start Ross Stripling in game two, you try to win that second game with Ross Stripling because if you do, and if you sweep the Mariners, now you've got Gosman twice in the DS instead of having to spend Gosman in game two and having him only once in the DS. What's your worst case scenario? You drop game two and you still have Kevin Gosman in game three. So yep. that, that, that's what I was pitching last week. I know the Blue Jays have discussed it, um, and I think they've been thinking through it a lot. And I think that there are a lot of different machinations that they've been considering. I wouldn't be surprised if they did that. Honestly, I also wouldn't be surprised if they just said, we're going to throw our best two pitchers in the first two games. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, it's a very fair way to, to proceed. And then that makes game three a bullpen game. That's fine. But if you just go with Gosman in the second game, again, some of that comes down to the finger, how it's healing. He seems to be in good spirits. Uh, you know, he says he's doing doing well and through that bullpen with no apparent issues. We'll see. You know, it's it's at this point up in the air, and that's how the playoffs should be. You shouldn't lock yourself in. You shouldn't go in saying he's our two, so he's going the second game. Stay flexible and adjust as you have to go. As we head to break, let's knock off another one of these mailbag questions as we're talking about pitchers as well. Congratulations to Brian Swartz, who's going to get a backpack. Uh, And Brian's question is, if the need ever arose, who on the Jays pitching staff would be the best option to come into the game as a pinch runner a la Marcus Stroman back in the 2016 season? Very interesting question. Very interesting. Stroman was a great candidate for that. I don't see anyone quite at that level on this team. I, I might go Stripling. I mean, not in the series <laughs> where he's starting, like in a playoff. Yeah, because he's a starter. Probably not. Yeah. Probably has to be a reliever. Although Ross Atkins did say that he thinks Stripling could play for the New England Patriots today. That was an interesting yeah. aside. Um, but I was kind of as far as me saying like Trevor Richards would come in in the fifth inning of game one of the, that's not happening. No. And I don't think the Ross Stripling's playing for the New England Patriots. I, I, I think those think were so. both pretty absurd things to say. All right. So reliever, it has to be a reliever, right? I mean, it's... You're not throwing a starter. No, there. you're just not. Could this be... I mean, Phelps, no offense, David Phelps, you're probably too old to be that quick. I'll tell you who I'm going with. I'm going Adam Simber because okay. I just, right. I think he would be the the fleetest of foot of the bunch of them. I don't want to put Jordan Romano in that spot, right? So I'm not putting a starter in that spot. I'm not putting Romano in that spot. Mesa, Bass, Garcia, Phelps are all sort of larger, older individuals. Uh, Simber and you know what? Like runner up. I know my answer. You say Kikuchi. That's my answer. Yeah. It's you say. Honestly, because he is, ah, this is a terrible word, most expendable in a way, right? Like, in a way, like if something went absolutely wrong, right? Because you're putting a guy in an unfamiliar situation. So there could be an injury. So you don't want to risk somebody who's super, super crucial, right? That, and you say also, like, pretty underrated athlete, like, great at fielding his position. Great reactions, seems to move very well on the baseball field. No doubt. And I've heard Romano's pretty fast, but you're not using him in that situation. And I like I like the Yusei call. That's my final answer. I will give a little shout out here to Jose Barrios, who I think would probably be the best. Great athlete, but you're not using him. What's your reasoning for Yusei? Similar. Good conditioning, good athlete. And uh, yeah, he's not a core part of your pitching staff at this point. You're risking the least. And so, in a way, we're both saying we think Yusei Kikuchi is going to be on the postseason roster. I do think that. Yeah, I also think that. Yeah. And fans are going to know that by the time they listen to this. In this world right now, Ben and I don't know that. 
But I kind of think Yusei Kikuchi, <laughs> as wild as it is to say that right now, I wouldn't have said this a week ago, as wild as it, as it is to say that right now, I think Yusei Kikuchi is going to be on the postseason roster. Agreed. And I don't think he'll pitch leverage, but he's pitched well. And this is a guy who, against a Mariners team with a ton of lefties and switch hitters, probably has a spot on this roster. It's interesting. I was talking to someone about him in Baltimore, and they were kind of saying, you know, he's finally making the adjustments we were asking him to earlier this year. He's cut the cutter out of the repertoire, not throwing the cutter anymore. The Blue Jays hated that pitch, felt like he threw it in hitters counts, and it was an uncompetitive pitch and that it got crushed. He's throwing the slider harder. The slider's in that 86 to 88 range, and we spent the entire like first half of this season talking about how Yusei Kikuchi needs to throw his slider harder. It's something the Blue Jays were on him about from spring training. He's finally doing that. Uh, he's still not using his fastball as much as the Blue Jays would like him to, but I mean, coming into that outing on the last day of the season, I don't have the updated stats in front of me, but Yusei Kikuchi had struck out like nearly 40% of the batters they'd faced as a reliever. He'd still given up some crazy contact and he'd still walked some dudes and hit some dudes, but the stuff was playing a lot better. And I think it's because he was finally making some of those adjustments that the Blue Jays were asking him to do earlier this year. It's a great sign. And and look, I still don't think that, you know, he's going to be pitching in leverage or anything of that sort, but I mean, what if game two goes 14 innings, right? Yeah. And you say Kikuchi pitches innings 10 through 14 and he's the hero and the Jays walk. Like that's like almost your best case, right? And it's not to say that you plan for him to be part of things, but if you don't have him around, then, you know, you don't have quite as much length and, and he does give you a nice insurance policy. Is there a world where you say Kikuchi is like Andrew Miller on this team next year? And he's a reliever and he's going two inning outings and... You just kind of put the whole starting thing away and you just use them in this role and try to juice the velocity up and rely on the stuff and put them in better positions to succeed. To me, you take him to spring next year. You hope these adjustments continue. Stretch him out. He's a starter. But we'll see. We shall see. We're going to step away. But when we come back, we're going to talk celebrations. Uh, we're going to talk more Jays Mariners. And we got one more mailbag question to get to. And we continue on at the letters. through the kind of season you've had, Bo, how satisfying this one is. What are you thinking about right now? Yeah, I mean, this is what it's about, you know. It's about getting the playoffs and having opportunities. I feel like we're growing up in front of the world, so uh, we just go out It continues on at the letters, Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, live and in person, a rare thing for us from yes. Blue Jays workout day here on Thursday, October 6th. Head of this weekend's wildcard series against the Seattle Mariners. Thanks, Christian Ryan and Devlin Brand for their work on uh, this episode of That Letters. And it's time now for Major League Beer for Major League Baseball, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Ben, you tipped your hand as to your opinion on this, but I would like you to expand on it. Blue Jays celebrated a postseason clinch last Friday. They clinched on the off day. They came in on the Friday. They had already premeditated their celebration. Win or loss against the Boston Red Sox, they were going to celebrate. If they lost 12 nothing, they were going to celebrate. They ended up winning like 9-1, to so uh, you know, didn't really have to worry about that. But they celebrated anyway. Where are you at on the amount 
of celebrating by postseason clubs, the intensity of celebrations, the spraying of champagne, the jumping up and down, the way that ballplayers whoop it up when they uh, clinch the postseason. And, I mean, we'll see it again but from whoever wins this wildcard series, too. Yes, there will be another celebration in Toronto. Yes. The Blue Jays sincerely hoping that there's more than one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's been a while, certainly, since the Jays had the chance to celebrate like that. Um, and to me, every single time that you have the chance to celebrate in the baseball season, go for it. I mean, I don't mean after every single win, you're not celebrating like that. But if you clinch something, if you clinch a division, a playoff berth, it is a very long season. It's a demanding season. Uh, these players put in a ton of effort and time to get to where they want to go. And more often than not, you don't make the playoffs. There are 18 teams right now that are packing their bags and preparing for 2023. The Jays are not one of them. And every single time that they reach that next threshold, then they've earned that chance to celebrate and they should spray as much champagne at each other as they possibly can. Some people would say you haven't actually won anything yet. You just qualified for the playoffs. You just qualified for this dumb little tournament that you play at the end of the year. You don't see NBA teams doing this. You don't see NHL teams reacting like this when they qualify for the playoffs. Why do baseball teams do it, Ben? Well, you know, 12 teams out of 30, that's a pretty tough ratio to get into. And also, I don't know if I do think it's a little different if you have 16 out of 30 qualifying in the NHL or NBA playoffs. But even then, if I don't know, what's the eight seed in the NBA, the Atlanta Hawks? Like what's the are the Columbus Blue Jackets like an eight seed? And I'm just making Some these 500 teams team. Yeah. They want to get in and celebrate. I don't care. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Um, it's a long season. You want one chance to spray some champagne and, and pour some uh, Miller lights on each other. No issue with that whatsoever. So, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with it. I do think it's interesting, too, um, you know, that you look at just some of these celebrations and the lineups that teams play the next day, the quote unquote hangover game. I think that's a bit of a myth, too. Mm-hmm. I agree yeah. with you. These players are like 23, 24, 25. Uh, they were playing at, what, 3 p.m. the next day. Remember when you were in your early to mid-20s and you'd go out and have a few and you'd have something to do the next day in the middle of the afternoon? You couldn't do it. Like You couldn't get yourself together. You couldn't have a Gatorade. By the way, these are professional athletes who have access to like IVs and all kinds of you know potions and electrolytes that'll perk you right up. And these are also extremely well-conditioned young men who are playing this sport. They have no problem getting up to play a game the next day. You think guys don't go out and like have a few during the regular season? Or you don't, during, you don't or think that they can get booze on the charter yeah. every single road trip? <laughs> it's not like it's hard to access. Yeah. yeah. So players are going out and drinking during the year and they are coming back and playing the next day. You think the Red Sox weren't hung over on the Saturday when they they just lost on a Friday night and they're all staying in downtown Toronto, King West right there. You think some of them weren't going out and enjoying themselves at the end of a season that's going nowhere? Yeah, I think the, the hangover game is a myth. I think it's a total myth. I really do. I, I think that sometimes teams choose to rest their players. And, and I'm not saying that there's never been a player or even in 2022, that there aren't sometimes players who show up really hungover and don't play. I'm sure that happens. I don't know specific examples of that. I'm sure that happens because you're talking about a group of 700 to 1,000 individuals. And that's in any group that big, you're going to have some people who show up to work really hungover. But by and large, 
the day after you clinch, I mean, it also starts at like 10, 11 p.m. Yeah. And it's not like they're day drinking and sitting there all, <laughs> in the sun all day getting dehydrated. They're athletes. They're hydrated, like you said. They're in physical prime that most of us can't imagine. It's a myth. And when it comes to the celebrations, like I, it's just a baseball thing. And like I hate to even put it this way, but like you just have to be there to understand. Like you just have to be close to the game to get it and to understand why they do it. And I think people always – I can never properly relate to people – the grind of a baseball season. I like, I haven't figured out how to do it. Right. Because there are still these ideas that like, Oh, baseball players aren't real athletes and they're lazy and they don't work that hard. Like you have no idea the physical and mental grind of a baseball season. We're very fortunate and privileged to see it up close and to get a real like appreciation for how hard it is to get through a baseball season. Seven months. Like I was just complaining earlier this podcast about how we've been doing this for seven months. We haven't had to go out and play the game every night. No, we, our seats are pretty comfortable. Right. And so we don't travel as much as the players do. We travel a lot and that is grueling and tiring and changes you as a person. But for them, the travel is that much more extreme. And yes, they're on charters and like, yes, they have nice hotels, but it's still hard and it's still such a grind. So I do think that that when you do accomplish something at the end of a long year, that just release and just letting off that steam is important and meaningful and is something that ball players should do because it is just so mentally grueling and taxing to get through a baseball season. And as you said, 18 of 30 teams get to the end and are just like, wow, I am wiped. I am like physically completely depleted. Like I'm like 20 pounds lighter than I was literally when I started this year, I've lost all my muscle tissue mentally. I'm just defeated. And like, I don't know who's my friend and who's my enemy in this clubhouse anymore. And I've gone through all these like ups and downs interpersonally with everybody around the organization. And I've dealt with all this failure for seven months. I don't even really know how to process anymore. And now I just go home for the Toronto Blue Jays. They're one of 12 teams that gets to go on and play for something and get to do something great and be remembered for a very long time and make really like meaningful, indelible moments in a city like Toronto, which is a great place to play. So absolutely you celebrate. Absolutely. You let off that steam and you decompress a hundred percent. And I think like you could take the Yankees view or like the Steinbrenner Yankees view of like, if we don't win the world series, this season's been a failure. I'm like, okay. I mean, if that's how you want to define success, like, yeah. all right, I guess. Um, and the Yankees succeed by any measure a lot of the time, but by another measure, like there are 29 teams that don't win it every single year. And those teams are filled with individuals who are accomplishing things at the height of their profession. And every celebration, no one says this, but the, the unsaid part of every celebration is that you might not get to do it again. That might be it for the Blue Jays. And so you're going to go all this time <laughs> and not celebrate once? Yeah. Um, the, the, the cool thing about also this Blue Jays group is they really have been together for a long time. And they really do know each other really well. And that like that goes to coaching staff as well. Like John Schneider has had all of these guys for a long, long time. Like you think about it, like he had Tim Mesa in Vancouver in 2014. He had Kevin Biggio in Lansing in 2016. He had Vlad, Bo, Lourdes Guerrero Jr. at multiple levels 
All of them won a championship in 2018 with the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. Uh, Santiago Espinal was on that team. Jordan Romano was on that team. And all the names I just listed. Danny Jansen. John Schneider's known Danny Jansen since 2013. Wild. At friggin' in the Gulf Coast League. Danny Jansen was like 17, bat first, catcher. Had trouble throwing on a line to second base from behind the plate. Now you look at Danny Jansen as a big league catcher now with a very capable arm. And dude's like about to become a father right like he's a different person now it's been a decade like john schneider like rode buses with all these guys and john schneider was at the complex with all these guys and he has kind of climbed that organizational ladder along with them now he runs that clubhouse now he is in charge of course he wants them to celebrate of course he wants to be a part of it with them right of course he wants to take part in this moment this is like a group that's known each other for a very long time so i think that them all getting to this point now where they're about to play in the postseason is really significant and meaningful for them Uh, agreed agreed and last thing on this i guess we had a lot to say on these celebrations um (laughs) last thing on this for me is like some guys probably don't need that much of an excuse to let loose like it's just again think of any group some guys are just going to be more keen to seek out that outlet for their for their celebration uh, but for others this might be their moment with the team where they're really uh, celebrating together so again all those reasons so you see pete walker in there celebrating with the players that i will tell you that's not happening on a normal friday you know but you clinch, okay, now they're pouring beer and, and champagne on Pete Walker. We beat the Detroit Tigers in May. <laughs> Go nuts. I did have a you know a bit of a sneaky ancillary reason for bringing up the coaching staff, though, and that was to get to our third and final mailbag uh, winner. Congratulations to uh, Bev Masaros, I assume Beverly, but just says Bev here. So congratulations, Bev. And Bev asks, can you see all the coaching staff being back for next year? Well, they have a big coaching staff. I would say no. I I would say expect change. This is a team that made a massive change mid-season in firing Charlie Montoyo and bringing John Schneider in as the interim manager. With that, Casey Kandel became the interim bench coach. Um, So this is a team that remains in flux. Now, I think John Schneider will be back and should be back as the manager of this team for 2023 and beyond. But you had a big staff. And again, the bench coach position is one that I look at. Again, interim bench coach, right? Candell yep. is not the permanent bench coach of this team. I think Pete Walker will be back. I think we'll see a lot of familiar faces, but I think we'll see some change. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the interim tag will be removed from John Schneider's title, and he will just be the manager of this club going forward. And congratulations to him if that happens, because he has earned it, and he has grinded his way, as I just said, up every level of this organization. And I think he's doing a really spectacular job over the last, what's it been now, three months, maybe not even, since Charlie Montoya was dismissed. I think John Schneider's been excellent. Yeah, I really like think he's done a fantastic job. So I would like, I think he should be back, and I think that he will be back. And yeah, I agree with you that there will be some changes on his staff. I think that's just natural. And I don't know this offhand, but I doubt there's ever been, like there's ever been two years where the entire coaching staff has been completely consistent. There are always little changes within, and it's typically at you know the whatever the you know the strat the field coordinator level or like the hitting strategist level or something like that. I don't think there's going to be anything huge and dramatic, but I do think there will be some tweaks to the coaching staff. Yeah, think about it this way too: like the bigger that coaching staffs get, and they're 
big right now. Like a, I don't have it in front of me, but like a dozen coaches. It's on the back of the scorecards we use yeah. here at Rogers Center. It's like 12, 13 coaches. And so you have that many people, there's a good chance that there could be some change. Um, so great question. And we'll learn more probably by winter meetings. They usually have that sort of thing finalized. Yeah, early part there. of the... 23 season kind of somewhere you know prior to christmas typically um because you don't you know prior to the holidays i should say uh because you don't usually like to deal with that you like to have some certainty for for your staff members going into the holidays any kind of underrated aspect to this blue jays mariners series that you would point to like we talked about the pitching matchup a little bit i don't know if you want to get back a bit more into the offense or maybe even into the defense a little bit we saw the blue jays doing pfp today on the field we saw the blue jays doing a lot of defensive drills on the field they seem like pretty committed to not beating themselves to saying, look, if we get beat by a better team, fine, that's one thing. But we're not going to do anything to beat ourselves. Any kind of underrated things that you would point to in this series? You know, I would point to the lefties and the switch hitters on Seattle. Um, there are a lot of them. And, you know, of course, some big names there like Kelnick and Carlos Santana and others. So that's going to pose some challenges for the Jays as they navigate that lineup inning to inning because. Tim Meza is great. He's had an amazing season, but he can only pitch so much. Even if you use him every day, which should be on the table, these guys should be available for three in a row. But even if you do that, that's what, four outs? You know, like you still have other situations. So that's where Trevor Richards could be important. That's part of the reason I think they roster Yusei Kikuchi. Um, and ultimately, right-handers are going to have to get those lefties and switch hitters out, um, which they've done before. But I, to me, that does jump out. It starts with Alec Manoa because Alec Manoa this year had a 326 weighted on base against lefties, 231 against righties. It's a big difference, right? So if there has been one way to get Alec Manoa, it's been with lefties. Well, and on those lines, Jose Barrios allowed an 898 OPS to lefties this year. So that to me is another reason you probably start strip. Yep. Um, You think about it, the Mariners this year were a top 12 lineup against right-handed sinkers. So that applies to Barrios. That applies to Manoa. That applies to Strip a little bit too. He likes to use his sinker, although Strip is more so like, let me pitch to the lineup's weaknesses. So he might put that pitch away a little bit against the Mariners. But the Mariners had a 348 weighted on base against right handed sinkers. That's a big pitch for those three guys. The other interesting thing um, the Mariners were MLB's second worst team by weighted on base against off speed pitches. So you could get them with off-speed pitches. So think about Gosman's splitter. Think about Stripling's changeup, change right? Those are pitches that you can exploit the Mariners with. Manoa slider, obviously. Yeah, right? So that's something that I'm going to be looking at in this series. You might want to stay away from the fastballs against this Mariners lineup. Another one that I, like another thing that I would point to as an underrated thing that maybe hasn't been discussed enough would be Kevin Gosman's outing against the Mariners in May. It was suspicious. His lowest strikeout total of the year. Tied for his lowest strikeout total of the year in that outing. Just three. Five innings, seven hits, two earned runs. It was May 18th at Rogers Center. He gave up his first home run of the season in that outing. It was one of those days where like, the splitter just was not fooling hitters. There were only 18 swings on 38 splitters thrown in that outing. Only five whiffs. Six of them fouled off, seven put in play. So the, the Mariners were just taking the splitter. They were seeing it. They knew what was coming, and they were not swinging at it. Uh, meanwhile, 40 fastballs thrown in that outing, 25 swings. Mariners were on the fastball, zero swinging strikes 
on the fastball in that outing. So for some reason, what Kevin Gosman usually likes to do, disguising the fastball and the splitter, right? That's how he gets swing and miss on the fastball. A, it's like 96, 97, and that's a pretty good big league weapon, but also hitters think it's a splitter and they swing under it. Wasn't working against the Mariners that day. Cal Rally hit a home run off of a fastball in the fifth inning, first homer that Strip gave up all year. Gosman, yeah. 15 fastballs fouled off, 10 put in play. Something suspicious going on in that outing. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if he was tipping. I don't know if the Mariners just had like a great game plan and were like, look, if we see it down, we're taking it. And if we see it up, we're going to go after it. But for some reason, his splitter was not as effective that day. His fastball was being attacked and he didn't strike out a bunch of batters that day either. Really interesting. Yeah, I, I did not realize that. This, you know, speaking of how long the season is, that game is just gone from my memory. <laughs> Never happened. Um, I had to look it up. This yeah, wasn't well, just off the top I, of my head. I, I, I presumed, had to look yes. that up. That's that's interesting stuff. I think, yeah, definitely. If you're the Jays, you want to do everything you can to make sure that there's no tell uh, that that Gosman has. Um, for the Mariners too, he might be opposing Robbie Ray if <laughs> things play out on Saturday um, that way and. If I'm the Jays, I really would want Pete Walker to sit in the hitters meeting <laughs> yep. that day, not the pitchers meeting, the yep. hitters meeting and say, this is what Robbie Ray does. Look for this. This is how you can get to him. It sounds almost cruel, but like this is the playoffs. Like you have to, any weakness that Robbie Ray has, exploit it, expose it. This is the Jays chance. Is there anybody in baseball who could offer a better scouting report on Robbie Ray than Pete right? Walker? So right. This is perfect for the Jays in a way. He's the one who turned Robbie Ray's career around. If anyone can undo him, now's the time, Pete. He knows exactly what Robbie's trying to do in certain counts, exactly what he goes to when things aren't going right. He knows what makes him tick. He knows what gets him off of his game. He knows what rattles him. Like he know he knows like really intricate details. Like he knows him really well personally right and i'm sure those guys like honestly like really like each other and feel yeah. really strongly about one another but when it comes to competition on saturday it's gonna be we gotta beat you so i'm gonna exploit every weakness that i know about you and pete walker knows those weaknesses when it comes to robbie ray so we can tell blue jays hitters like look for this look for that blue jays hitters can be really well prepared the other thing i would point to Robbie Ray in his last outing against Oakland, and who knows, maybe it was just one bad outing. He gave up three homers, and he was giving up home runs to like not great hitters in that outing. I mean, we're talking about like Christian Pache and Nick Allen. I mean, there just aren't good hitters in, in Oakland's lineup, but we're talking about particularly not good hitters and guys without a lot of power. And they were playing in Seattle, which like isn't the easiest place to hit a home run. Pache and Allen are taking you deep. It's kind of interesting that Robbie Ray's given up some homers coming into the postseason. I mean, Luis Castillo had a couple clunkers down the down the stretch as well. These aren't guys who are coming in to the playoffs like Alec Manoa is coming off of a September when he had a .88 ERA. Historic, yeah. And Alec Manoa, just as a quick aside, needs to get Cy Young consideration. I don't vote for that. So easy for me to say. But really, I mean, he had a phenomenal season. He should be top three for that award, in my opinion, after posting second best ERA in Blue Jays history. Alec Manoa trying to make sure they stay there as he will do his part here tonight. Really as popular as any player on the team. And if, if you were voting Buck for a team MVP, this would be a good place to start the conversation. No question about it, because he has so much to do with the Blue Jays and how they are performing this year. And I would give him my vote, of course.
this podcast is about the playoffs, but I mean, shout out to Alec Manoa for that season. Now, Robbie Ray, I had to look this up, and so other uh, some of our listeners might not know it. His year was good in Seattle, 371 ERA, 212 strikeouts, 189 innings. That's a great season by Robbie Ray. But as you said, Arden, you know, you look at the home run total, which is 32, there is a way to get to Robbie Ray, and it is with the long ball. I think for the Mariners to win this series, they need Luis Castillo and Robbie Ray to be really, really good. Like they need them to be spectacular, throwing dominant ace-like outings. Because I think Toronto has a much better lineup than the Mariners. And it's tough, right? Because the Mariners are a little bit banged up right now. Like they're not going to have Haggerty. They're not going to have Winker. Like they're, you know, Carlos Santana might be hitting cleanup. He did not have a great year. Um, you know, Mitch Haniger is a guy you talk to some, you know, some former players and they're like, yeah, it gets a little tense in big moments. Um, like they certainly don't have the depth of lineup. Like they don't have producers towards the bottom that the Blue Jays could. Like if Matt Chapman's hitting six or seven, if Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is on the roster and hitting towards the bottom of the lineup, if Whit Merrifield can keep doing what he's been doing, right? I just think that, you like the Blue Jays offense in this series a lot more. I think both bullpens are kind of so-so. And, you know, the Mariners maybe have a bit more velo. But, I mean, the Blue Jays bullpen deserves some respect for what it did yep. down the stretch. Um, and I really just think for the Mariners to win, they need those two guys going in games one and two to be really, really, really good. I think that's how they win this series. And they can be because those guys are really good pitchers. Logan Gilbert, too, finished strong in September in October, six starts, two ERA. I mean, he's been phenomenal for them at times and really finished strong. So that's a scary three for the Jays to potentially face. You, know, you mentioned Whit Merrifield there, and we really haven't talked about him a lot on ATL because he's uh, just not really played that well until or that recently. Much. Or that much. <laughs> now yeah. he's playing all the time and he's playing great. So my read is he's the starting second baseman for this team at this point. I mean, is that how you see it unfolding? I think... Santiago Espinal will be on the roster, yeah. and I think Whit Merrifield will start at second base. Agreed. I think that's what will happen in game one. Um, and look, I talked to Whit about like a week ago. We were, it was back in, it was when they were in Toronto. So it was before they left for the Baltimore series. And I kind of went up to him and I was like, hey, man, are you doing anything different with your swing now? Like, because I had gone in and I'd been like looking at the eggs of Velos, like, man, he's striking the ball way better. The ball's coming off his bat a lot faster. So you do, yeah, I'd looked at video, nothing looked, you know, different to me. And I was like, are you, are you doing anything different? And he like looked at me like I was the dumbest man in the world. <laughs> he was like, no, man, I'm just playing. Like, I just, I'm just playing now. And he didn't have that playing time before and look he hadn't earned it right when he came over to toronto the blue jays said he was coming over to be an everyday player he did play pretty frequently when he first came over and then he played his way out of that run if you think about whit merrifield was mlb's iron man like earlier this year played 553 consecutive games think about how important routines are for ball players right and comfort is for ball players well whit merrifield did the exact same thing every single day for over 550 games and then he had to do things differently and i think it was a struggle for him honestly i think that the different rhythm and the different routines and not really knowing how to prepare for games and not really knowing when his opportunities are going to come i don't think that benefited him and like i said 
he wasn't earning run. You know, he's on a much better team now. It's one thing to play 553 straight for the Kansas City Royals from 2016 to 2021 or whatever the years were. It's another to do it for the Blue Jays who have a deep and talented lineup. Like, you got to earn your way into this lineup. But I just think that with the benefit of more regular playing time, what Merrifield has kind of rediscovered, you know, what he was able to do earlier in his career, he, like, he doesn't think that he's at a point where he should be declining <laughs> and you know that you can argue with that if, if you want like obviously he is getting a little bit older into his career he's clearly on the back nine of it but I think that he feels like he's still got a lot to offer and he feels like with the benefit of more regular playing time like he just feels a lot more like himself and he's able to kind of find this hot streak that he hasn't been able to find all year well, and, and what this means now for the Jays is you've got Merrifield hitting ninth. You've got Danny Jansen hitting like seventh a lot of the time as the DH. Um, you've got maybe Tapia is your eight hitter. It is a deep lineup, and it's no fluke that they led the American League in batting average, on base percentage, slugging percentage. They're one of the best lineups that you're going to find in the playoffs, and so that's a strength for this team. You know, as much as Castillo and Ray could be a duo that, that powers the Mariners past the Jays to the Astros, you look at this Jays lineup, they can score eight runs against anyone. I was searching for it there. The other thing that he said that I was trying to get to and I couldn't remember, he like he feels just more confident now and he feels like subconsciously there's a little bit of a lack of confidence when things weren't going his way and when he wasn't playing regularly, he was kind of facing some adversity. He feels like subconsciously a little bit of a lack of confidence bled in to his plate appearances and he kind of told me now like I'm seeing the ball fall in right and when things go well for you you're just going to be more confident it's just a natural thing with whatever you do so he he does feel like he's kind of you know rolling on that confidence right now the other thing I'll say with Whit Merrifield like doing a lot of little things they're helping his team win you, man that ball that he scored on from third base um in Baltimore in the first game of that series like the fifth inning and uh, Dean Kramer's on the mound, right? And so Dean Kramer, in his first plate appearance uh, against Bo Bichette, threw him like a ton of breaking balls. And Whit Merrifield's watching that from the Blue Jays' dugout, just like, huh, like Kramer's throwing Bichette a ton of breaking balls. So Merrifield gets on base, like later in the game's fifth inning, he gets the third base, and he goes to Louis Rivera. He's like, hey, man, like, Bo's up. Kramer threw him a bunch of breaking balls his last time up. I'm sitting on a breaking ball in the dirt here, and I'm going to go on it. And so Louis was like, okay yeah sure man like uh and and like i don't know next pitch two pitches later kramer spikes a breaking ball in the dirt it goes maybe like five feet from adley rutschman it went like it barely went past the home plate cutout and merrifield is just like racing home the second that ball hits the dirt like that focus and that anticipation thinking of the game noticing little things like that in the game those little things could like come up huge in a postseason moment what a break by merrifield he broke as soon as that ball hit the dirt from third base and scores easily on the wild pitch well he's got great instincts as a base runner yes he does and he might be the blue jays base runner you're at third base and, and if you're in august and that happens you forget about it you go on to the next game but you know, you think about the playoffs and the last time the Jays were here, it was the Donaldson dash, right? Yeah. He's sliding across home plate against the Texas Rangers as the Blue Jays advanced to play Cleveland in the ALCS in 2016. That was good base running by Josh Donaldson. It was aggressive base running by Donaldson. And those sorts of decisions, I mean, obviously within reason, but those decisions can be really helpful. Prediction time. What is your prediction 
for the series? What do you think is going to happen between the Blue Jays and Mariners in the wildcard series? All right. I like predictions. Um, I'm going to say Jays sweep. I agree. How do they do it? Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what they're going to do. Jays are going to sweep. Game one, they're going to win by like a couple runs, two or three. Jordan Romano is going to get like a five-out save. Game two is going to be tied going into extras, and Ooh. George Springer is going to walk it off. Wow. That's what's going to happen. You say Kikuchi winning pitcher? <laughs> I'm not going that far. <laughs> yeah, I could see a Springer walk off or a lead off. I could see a Springer lead off home run at some point, walk off. Yeah, I like that call. You heard it here first, folks. Why do you think the Blue Jays sweep? I do think they're the better team. Yeah. I, so, of course, I'm going to pick them. You win one, you have a lot of momentum, and it's just one more win at that point. I'll say this. I think they sweep because the Mariners like have been scuffling this month, have not been playing impressive baseball, have been coughing up games to not very good opposition, like you know, the Angels and Oakland, and the Blue Jays are just surging. Like They're peaking at the right time. Honestly, I think the Blue Jays have played their best baseball all season over the last four weeks. Um, 22-11 and 11 in September slash October, nearly a plus 50 run differential. I get that. A lot of it was against the Boston Red Sox. But I think if you really watch this team, you understand that like right now, offensively, starting pitching, bullpen, defense, not beating yourself, not committing little unforced errors, the Blue Jays are kind of checking all the boxes right now, and they've kind of come together and peaked at the perfect time. So I think just what have you done for me lately? I think on current form, the Blue Jays are the better team right now. The better team on paper, more talented team, I think, but also just playing the best baseball right now. So that's why I think the Blue Jays sweep. And they have been able to line things up pretty nicely, like even resting Springer for the doubleheader, lining up their starting rotation. We weren't sure if they were going to have to you know, consider using an Alec Manoa for a few innings in a game 162, none of that had to happen. They didn't even have to consider it seriously. So these guys are as rested as you could hope for the most part. We'll see what happens with Lourdes and Espinal, but they're in a very good position, very good team. And yeah, we're both calling a sweep here. How about that? I am not as rested as you would hope. Uh, not. <laughs> I didn't for, say you were rested. Not for the least part, <laughs> but that's okay. We'll get through it. Uh, thanks to Devlin Brand for helping us out on site here at Rogers Center Blue Jays Workout Day. Thanks for Christian Ryan for all the heavy lifting he always does on the podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. Enjoy the Wild Card Series this weekend. Live it up. This is what you get through the entire season for. This is what it is. This is the moment that that you should really enjoy. The Blue Jays are back in the postseason. It's going to be a really fun series. Win, lose. Ben and I will be back afterwards to recap it and perhaps set up where the Blue Jays go from here. Until then, we'll talk to you next time on At The Letters.